I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is your weekly briefing for the week ending March 19th. We consider the electronic devices we carry to be reliable, and for most of us, they are as dependable as we could wish them to be. But few of us ever take our gadgets anyplace that will really test how truly dependable they are. Matt Dupuy is an engineer and a mountain climber, and he's taken his electronics to places most of us will never be able to get to. This week, Electronics in Extremis. Before we get to that discussion, here's a quick rundown of some of the top articles we have in EE Times this week. We've all heard about the looming end of Moore's Law. Hitting the limit on Moore's Law doesn't mean an end to progress in semiconductor technology, however, and there are several possible paths forward to achieve, as the new saying goes, more than Moore. One technology receiving a lot of attention is chiplets. Contributor Don Scanson has a couple of articles exploring what chiplets are all about. Wafer inspection might sound like a minor issue in the semiconductor production process, but it's actually critical. Why? Because you can't fix a problem you can't find, and it is devilishly difficult to find manufacturing flaws or contaminating particles that might be no bigger than 2 or 3 nanometers. We write about Applied Materials' brand new inspection system that includes artificial intelligence which the company says can keep up with the most advanced IC manufacturing processes. The Internet of Things has enabled some incredibly useful applications, but it has also paved the way for one network security disaster after another. The electronics industry is trying its best to do what it can to make the IoT safer. We've got an exclusive story on how Silicon Labs has created a wireless chip for IoT products. It's the first chip to earn certification under a new security regime. We've also got articles on one of the unintended consequences of shutting down 3G networks next year, on Amazon's quietly becoming a significant participant in the automotive industry, and Intel's Horse Ridge quantum computing technology. Those and other stories at eetimes.com. If you're on our podcast webpage, there are links on your left. It was not that long ago when, if you were expecting an important phone call, you had to stay home and wait for it. You couldn't go anywhere because your phone was literally attached to a wall. Cellular networks began spreading in earnest in the 1990s. Once smartphones came along, they began replacing other gadgets. They took over the markets for cameras, navigation systems, audio players, and more. Now, in 2004, almost every American who had a phone still had a landline. The percentage of people in 2004 who had switched to cell phone use only was in the low single digits. By 2020, however, nearly two-thirds of U.S. phone customers had ditched their landlines entirely, and the percentage of people relying solely on their mobile phones climbed to 62%. That's according to Statista. If there's anything 
dampening the complete reliance on cell phones, it might be the limits of cell network coverage. Sometimes you just can't get a signal. That said, wireless network coverage keeps expanding. Dead spots along interstates have been filled in. There are towers covering beaches and waterways. Now you can sometimes get a signal on what used to be remote wilderness trails or even when dangling off the side of a mountain. And that's the lead into our next segment. You can now use your gadgets just about anywhere and anytime, including when you're climbing mountains. Matt Dupuy is a principal engineer at ARM. He's currently working with ARM's strategic partners to enable security, development tools, machine learning, and power efficiency for the next generation of processor technologies. And for the last two decades, he's been a mountain climber. He reached the top of Mount Everest in 2009, climbed K2 in 2014, and achieved the summit of Annapurna 1 in 2016. At the time, he was only the second American to summit all three. He's also been up Kilimanjaro, the Matterhorn, Denali, and the Leaning Tower in Yosemite. I called him up to talk about using technology when he's mountain climbing and how that technology has changed over the years. I've done hiking and I get to the edge of anything high and I don't really want to go over. I, how is that? How is that the first time just like figuring like, okay, I'm over the edge. I think you really picked on a good point there. I just got back from a, a, a trip climbing in, in Utah over the weekend. And, and that, that fear response is, is we're all comparing notes. Um, it, it, once you learn to trust the ropes and the systems and, and everything you've taught yourself and learned from others and learned from reading and, you know, other people's mishaps. Um, yeah, that adrenaline response goes away. You, you, it's, it's really problem solving at that point, but yeah, that first time, Waiting a rope that's anchored to something and lowering yourself over the edge of something big, or, or you know, the first time I ever spent the night on a on a big wall in Yosemite, you know that, yeah, that those those experiences stick in my mind really well because the, the adrenaline is kicking and the fight or flight response is is pounding, and yeah, it was that was a, that was a pretty big deal. I remember the, the first few cliffs a lot, and now it's just it's it's all about. How do we build systems that keep people safe? And and I really trust that the, the knowledge of the people that I climb with and and, and and my own now. There might be some some similarities in the way you approach mountaineering and the way you anybody might approach engineering. And that is you check everything until you're certain it works. Yeah. Same with safety systems and engineering, you know, anything that's gonna go into a plane or an automobile or, or, you know, even, even just a handheld GPS or something, you know, we want redundancy. We want to, to know that there are failover systems and plan B's and it, it's, it is very much, I mean, uh, not to, not to force the analogy, but the, the software engineering practices and rope management practices that I use in both worlds are, are pretty similar. I mean, we, yeah, we, we, we we always shoot to be perfect the first time, you know, failure is not an option, but there's always, you know, fallover systems and failovers. It really is putting one foot in front of the other um, and, and repeating a lot. <laughs> if everything's going the way it's supposed to go, it's not very exciting. Um, of course, everybody asks the, the, the questions about what happens when things go wrong or how you do, do simple day-to-day -day tasks. But yeah, it, 
we, especially with larger peaks, make a lot of plans in advance down low where, we're, where our brains are functioning well and, and oxygen rich atmosphere. And, uh, you know, what are we going to do if X, Y, Z happens, if we come across somebody who's incapacitated or somebody who's recently taken a fall or, you know, and we go through those scenarios ahead of time. So when we get to a bad place, um, we all, we all know kind of where each other's minds are at and what we're supposed to do and try to do it automatically. And that's, that's happened. I mean, I made it up above 8,000 meters on Kanchenjunga and we ran out of fixed line and, everybody on my team understood like this is this is when people get books written about them <laughs> what, what what decision is made here <laughs> and we we decided to turn around we didn't we, we got so close to the summit but we turned it around so that was like yeah the planning that went into that ahead of time you know it's, it seems like a, an inconsequential decision um once you've you've mapped everything out so yeah it is there's a lot of of pre-planning that that goes into it that makes it pretty automatic hopefully <laughs> the preparations uh, have changed a little bit over the years, and some of that is the technology. And I wanted to ask you, um, what's the type of equipment you would prepare with? Uh, that, what would you bring with you 15, 20 years ago? And what do you bring with you now that's, that makes, whether it's the preparation or the actual climbing, different? It seems like every five years that the answer to that question changes dramatically. Um, I, I started, I started, you know, with with paper topo maps and magnetic compass and you know old analog compass when I was a kid, um, trying to learn how to navigate, you know, without a trail and, and signs, just looking at, at peaks and valleys and, and stars and, and trying to figure out, you know, all you know, very old school. Um, now I never carry any of that, um, not even as redundancy because. Um, I can have, uh, you know, to jump forward all the way to now, I have, I generally, if anything's more than a couple of days, we'll have a triply redundant GPS system. Like the, the obvious one is the phone, right? Everybody, but we take that for granted now that everybody's got downloadable maps on their phone and a fast GPS on their phone. But uh, that, that's been a, a huge changer. Uh, uh, you're just having at least, you know, that in the pocket. Handheld GPSs were the first time that I got really comfortable relying on other people's information um, outside of, 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 you know, somebody who made a map, you know, people are posting GPX coordinates on the internet and like, you know, I was able to find a way up this mountain by going here and like, Oh, you know, this, we can actually do this on a handheld GPS. And that was the first real piece of technology. Um, and that hasn't changed radically with the phone, but now I've got, you know, I've got a watch on that can do the same. I don't have to take my massive gloves off on big mountains. I can just glance at my wrist and know where I am. And that's a huge change. Um, and then, like you said, the satellite phones um, have gotten less expensive. Um, and I, the, my, my favorite device now is, a, is just a little satellite transponder for sending text messages rather than being able to necessarily call. Um, it's so incredibly lightweight. And it has a map on it and a GPS on it. And, you know, if, if you get into trouble, and fortunately, I've never had to use it for my own problems, but I've, I've been involved in other rescues where, where my device was, or one of our devices was, was used really heavily just to text back and forth with search and rescue. Um, so all of that has become incredibly compact and battery efficient and reliable. And like I said, now it's, it's redundant. And um, so like between having a, especially on big expeditions, having a, a satellite phone is, is, it's not 
inexpensive, but it has become accessible. And that's changing every decade. You know, we, we see all the Starlinks going up now. I can't wait until we get an actual high-speed internet that we don't have to pay $5 a megabyte for <laughs> in the back country. It must be really comforting to know that if you're someplace where you really don't want to take your gloves off, you don't have to. You really hit on it. At least for me, I, I know not all climbers are the same in terms of how much they rely on technology for safety, but I don't know if everybody reads Crack Hour like I do, but you read something like Into Thin Air and, and you know, how simple thing like a, a piece of string or a handheld GPS or could have changed their the outcome of, of what they experienced. Um, but that's exactly what I thought of when I started seeing these watches with, with moving maps on them. Um, yeah, I, if you, you can... A lot of big mountains, we start our summit bid in the dark, you know, at, at 10 p.m. And you, you can't rely on, or, or there's whiteout conditions, you can't rely on seeing terrain and knowing, knowing where you are. You've got a little headlamp and you're living in a little three-foot bubble of, of your life, of just what, what's the headlamp lights up. So, well, so but that's the, the watch was a big change for me. Um, yeah, being able to have, and, and, and even in the last 10 years with multiple GPS constellations going up now, um, they've gotten so fast and accurate that I really would trust the map that's on my wrist that's showing me exactly where I am within, you know, a, you know, a meter precision or less. Um, and yeah, so I, I very frequently do download tracks or program my own GPS track um, into the watch. And then if I'm doing everything from ski mountaineering to, to just, you know, backcountry hiking without a trail, um, just constantly checking myself, you know, looking at that little line on my, my wrist, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's a, it's almost a background process at that point. You're not intentionally reaching into your pocket to grab your phone or your handheld GPS. Um, and I think, yeah, that has been a huge change for me that, that has made climbing accessible. And, and, and like I said, um, on, on the big peaks, we have huge mittens on and we're usually on a fixed line or, or we're, we're tethered to somebody else and we're constantly, you know, hands on the rope. Um, and so, yeah, having, just being able to glance at, at the wrist uh, and, and see, here's where I am, here's my altitude, or here's approximately how fast I've been moving and what my summit time should be, or, you know, turnaround time should be, um, having all that information right there without having to touch anything, um, is great. So yeah, we'll, we'll see if, if a voice activation type of, of thing comes to, to pass, um, right now, I mean, it's slight, slight tangent, but traveling to different countries to do these, these changing, having offline voice assistance um, or translation has come in handy a few times. Cause I mean, I, I know thank you and beer in about a dozen languages, but, but, you know, get it, getting, getting into the further reaches of, of Pakistan or Kashmir, like uh, downloading those, those translators ahead of time. Yeah. You, you can bridge huge gaps. So that's a bit of an aside, but yeah, I, I expect I expect if I can talk to my my watch or my uh, little you know satellite communicator pretty soon, that'll that'll definitely change within the next ten years. One of the components of 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 scaling really high peaks is that the air gets thin, and you had mentioned you'd alluded to this earlier. You know, you 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 get oxygen deprived, and it becomes hard to think. The simplest component of that is just watching your time. I mean, these the the O two systems we use are. are constant regulation so we we you know can set it to three liters per minute of, of oxygen and 
but yeah, as we, if you start to feel bad or you're getting higher on the summit and you need a little more, or you're maybe you're behind and you want to conserve or you're ahead and you want to crank it up, just being able to, to have a calculator to do that and not have to think through the math, um, is huge. Right. That's, and that's one of the fun games that we do. So I get closer to the top of the 8,000 meter peaks, um, there's about a third the atmosphere that there is at sea level. So we start asking each other very simple math problems <laughs> and we can't do them. So it's nice to have a calculator there to say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, an hour behind my, where I want to be on at this point. Um, what is my flow or you need to be to, to ensure that, that I'm going to have enough to get up and back. So even something as simple as a calculator um, is, is pretty big. Um, and most of the watches now are, are like dive watches, they have that, that kind of system built in. Um, there, there's a lot of similarities. And everything is rechargeable now, so we're not carrying a whole bunch of extra, you know, weird different batteries. I can carry one USB battery pack and charge my headlamp and my phone and my satellite device and, and really everything. And I've even stopped, you know, carrying. I, I used to carry a big four-pound DLS, DLS, SLR camera up, you know, 23,000 feet, and now... And, and that would freeze up on me on time from time to time. Yeah. They, they, they weren't designed for that. Um, and so having, having fewer moving parts, you know, everything's getting, becoming solid state, like mirrorless cameras, or even just, just a, a phone camera is, is better, um, than, than things were 10, 20 years ago that were, were bespoke devices. So, um, for sure having fewer, you know, everything going solid state and, and being sealed up and having, you know, all the, all the ports being waterproof is, is, is a big difference. Have you gotten so spoiled that now you're like looking for something that hasn't been made yet? It's like, come on already. You need to develop this for me. The obvious one is, is just a better all in one communication device. The more you can, can put into to a single device, and or a couple you know like like a, a phone makes a great reasonable flashlight in an emergency and a gps map and um, they started making these little uh, repeater little um, bluetooth repeater beacons that you can use offline that will you know you can sms up and down um so there, there's the, the more you could use it use technology offline you know if i if i could use my phone as my my radio as well as uh, you know, my my map and, and more of a more of an online capacity than we're used to now. It would it would be great. Um, and I don't know if that is either going to be like okay, phones start interlinking up and down the mountains with other with other people's devices, or if we get, just get incredibly inexpensive or, or um, power efficient satellite systems, or or what the answer is there, but. Like the, like the that the devices are all consolidating now. I think it's the direction. Like if I can have if I can have this much technology on my wrist, um, it can only get better, right? Like it can only communicate. The more it communicates with other devices in my pockets or with the people around me, I think the better. I you know, obviously there's a big, big privacy conversation to have there, but I think safety comes in communication, and these devices enable that. And and the more that they talk with each other, so yeah, if somebody wants to build me a. A, pho- a phone that's not just a, a mobile cellular phone, but also satellite and VHF radio and <laughs> will we'll, uh, mesh network up the net mountain. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Let me ask the, the, just the pure mountaineering question. What is it? Where's the point of satisfaction or points of satisfaction for you? Is it when you hit the top? Is it, is it coming back safe? What is it? Getting to the top doesn't count if you don't make it back safely. Yeah. Um, 
it, that's changed over time. That's a, it's an interesting question. It was very much a, at first it was a really great excuse to travel and, um, and get away from just the metropolitan areas and really connect with, with a lot of people from all over the world and, and get to some really remote places just for bragging rights. And, and, but a lot of it has become a very much the, the psychological challenge of, and, and it, you know, it is very much a physical activity. You, you know, have to be in pretty reasonable shape, but I think more than that, it is a psychological test. Um, and, and it's a problem solving challenge. That's just, it's fun. It's, um, being able to look up at a, a blank cliff face and say, you know, could I, can I translate what I'm seeing into something that's solvable safely is, is fun. It's just as much fun to me to, to, to solve a climb as it is to, you know, figure out a, a new algorithm and, or, or, you know, <laughs> optimize some piece of software. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot. It's, it's, yeah, it's psychologically challenging. It's, it's self continuous self-improvement. It's a, and it's a good excuse to, to stay in shape. <laughs> That's Matt Dupuy, an engineer with ARM and a mountain climber. There was a reference during our conversation I ought to explain. Matt and I mentioned John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. It was a bestseller in 1997. In it, Krakauer relates his experience as a member of a disastrous 1996 expedition on Mount Everest. It's a classic account of mountaineering and of the commercialization of adventure tourism. It's still in print, and I can't recommend it enough. Some of us here at EE Times have been covering technology for quite some time now, and among us, we've met thousands of engineers. It recently struck us how many engineers we've met who have serious avocations. For example, we recently met an engineer who's a mountain climber. We've met at least two pyrotechnicians, a small handful of painters, and a boatload of musicians. You've heard of STEM, the combination of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, S-T-E-M, STEM. Many people involved in STEM careers have been arguing all along that we really ought to add arts to the bundle, that STEM should add an A for arts and become STEAM. It got us to thinking about how art and engineering overlap and that it would be both worthwhile and fun to explore that overlap. So we just started a new series of, uh, I don't know, what do you call a podcast that has video? It's a series of that. Whatever you call them, you can find them on our podcast page at eetimes.com slash podcasts. Our new series is called the Artful Engineer, and our first subject is Jack Wiest. He's an Intel Fellow and the Vice President of Automated Vehicle Standards at Mobileye, an Intel company. And he plays at least two instruments that I know about, sometimes out in public with a handful of his Intel co-workers who are also musicians. Here's an excerpt with our interview with Wiest, conducted by EE Times Global Editor, Junko Yoshida. Who's your favorite? classical music composer yeah that's a good one um i would say from a classical music standpoint definitely chopin um from the romantic era um the songs uh like his nocturnes for example which are kind of dark and foreboding and and music to be listened to at night 
uh, I guess, sort of fits with the, uh, the the later computer scientist that stays up all night programming. Did you always enjoy playing the piano in front of a big audience? Yeah, for me, um, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's that I enjoyed it. But what happens is, is you, is you get, uh, you know, people talk about how you get in the zone or something, right? Um, when I play and when when musicians play, um, you get you get to a different place, you know, in terms of where the music takes you. And so in a sense, you could be in a room by yourself or in a room full of a thousand people. And if you're really focused on the music and you're really feeling it, the whole rest of the world just kind of tunes out. Um, it's just it's an amazing feeling, unlike anything anything else I've ever experienced. And so it's really that that, that allows me to try to forget about the fact that there's an audience. Um, and uh, but you know, in a, in a strange way, today, uh, you know, when I give talks or keynotes or things like that for for my for my day job now, it's a similar kind of thing. You know, when you're in your element and you're loving what you're doing and you're having fun doing it, uh, it everything else becomes easy. How did you learn programming? I heard you learned to code by using a compute magazine when you were a kid. I was always fascinated with with the art of programming uh, and with computers. And so it's true. After I got my requisite hour or two uh, a day of practicing the piano, I'd immediately run over to the computer and try to squeeze in as much time there as well. Uh, so self-taught myself how to program from those code listings uh, that were that used to be published in those magazines in, in elementary school. Uh, I was learning how to do that. So uh, ironically, you know, music was my career, if you will, uh, and yeah. and the computers was my hobby. Uh, and and amazingly, as as the life goes, uh, I ended up swapping those passions for each other. How did you end up switching your career path from piano to computer science? Yeah, that's right. In fact, even uh, in high school, um, I got special approval to change the requirements. So I got out of taking additional math and science classes so I could study more music. And so, uh, so I got and so all along the path was music. Um, whether it was music performance, you know, your chances of making it are one in a million or teaching, which I love to do. I used to teach piano lessons as well uh, to kids in the neighborhood. Um, but ultimately what happened along the way was um, some some really trusted advisors of mine said, hey, look, it is tough. It is a one in a million chance to make it professionally. Uh, and and the, the, it's really sad, the state of music education in public schools, for example, and the level of investment in arts, you know, has been was decreasing considerably at that time in the, the mid to late 90s. Uh, and so uh, I was asked, you know, are you sure? Is there anything else, you know, that you like to do that might have better uh, career prospects? And I said, well, I'm, I'm taking all these computer science courses as electives <laughs> for fun. Uh, I never thought uh, really that that could be a career path. So how did you end up at Intel? I ended up at Intel uh, because actually my uh, very first intro to computer science professor, Warren Harrison from Portland State University, um, was uh, knew someone who worked at Intel and they asked him for a recommendation. You know, do you have any do you have any bright kids that would be interested in an internship? Um, and that's kind of a funny story because at Intel at that time, uh, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but there were requirements on you had to have a certain number of years of study in the program. But because I changed from music to computer science, I didn't have the, the requisite amount of study in the computer science program, but I did have that length of time at the university, right? Because I spent the first year 
studying music. And so I, I kept trying to talk myself out of it and trying to convince Intel that I wasn't eligible for this internship. And eventually the hiring manager says, do you want the internship or not? And so I said, okay, I'll take it. Uh, and uh, the rest was history. That was in 1997 uh, when I first uh, accepted an internship at Intel. And uh, it's been just an unbelievable ride. I'm just so honored to work for this great company. And it's been so, so good for me. Tell us about a concert your rock band had at Intel a few years back. We played a concert, actually, uh, in, 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 at Intel a few years ago uh, with my boss uh, at the time, Alan Crouch, uh, who is a former musician himself. Uh, we put together a band with folks in our in our business group at the time, and we played about an hour long concert for for the team, just as a as a celebration and a way to to have fun. So there's a lot of there's a lot of musicians out there in the halls of Intel. You, you're always surprised, you know, who who's actually a a secret musician and uh, that you didn't know it. So it's probably suggesting even even more so that link between the arts and sciences. That was Intel fellow Jack Wiest. We invite you to catch our first Artful Engineers podcast, or whatever it is. There's a link on this podcast's webpage. And hey, do you know somebody who combines an interest in science and art? Let us know. We've got our contact information on the webpage too. And that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending March 19th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The music for the intro and the outro were both by Jack Wiest. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Ed Kaufman from Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but uh, back in the day, back when when you know cellular phones first, the first wireless phones came out, having a walkie-talkie was just as good in most instances. You know? Yeah. I had a, a CB radio pretty early on and was such a, a geeky electronic kid. The first 900 megahertz walkie-talkies that were meant for kids, we were boosting the power on those and we were picking up. We were picking up analog signals from people that I think were either assume that their conversations were private or, yeah. That was illegal. <laughs> Don't tell the SEC. <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember those early mobile days. The statute of limitations <laughs> is probably elapsed, <laughs> probably. Yeah, well past. That's That's got to be 30 years ago. So. <laughs>